Amen. Good morning. I hope you guys are having a good summer. Um, and uh, I've been excited about this series. Uh, it is finished. Excited about preaching this particular message as well. Um, and I uh, thought Jordan did a great job last week kind of kicking this off. And just looking at, you know, why would Jesus, in his last words, why would he say it is finished? And even what does that include? Like what, what's finished? What's completed? And when we look at the cross, what we see is that Jesus did everything. He completed everything necessary for us to be able to be reconciled with God. He paid the price for our sin. And oftentimes we hear that. We hear people say that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But what we want to do the next four weeks is take a little bit of a deeper dive into what actually took place on the cross. And so a little bit more detail of what actually happened. What were the things that had to happen on the cross so that Jesus could say it is finished. And so today we're going to be looking at something. It's a, a big theological word. Some of you may have heard of it. Maybe some of you haven't. But the word we're looking at today is called propitiation. And, and what that means basically is it means an appeasing or a satisfaction or satisfying of someone's anger, of someone's wrath. And this is one of the things that happened with Jesus on the cross. And so we're going to be looking at this. We're going to look at this through uh, the book of Romans. We're going to start in Romans chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn there today, we're going to begin reading in Romans 1.18. And so thinking about this, thinking about it is finished, as we go through these next four weeks, we're going to see these different bits of imagery that are used to describe what happened on the cross Today, as we think about appeasing God's anger or a God's anger or the God's anger, um, I want you to think about this in terms of a shrine. The Bible kind of looks at this as um, a shrine, as people coming and trying to appease the gods, but it's different for us. We don't come to try to appease God through our effort. What we see is it's through God's effort that the propitiation happens, that the satisfaction for his anger or anger is, uh, is done, that there is the appeasement of his anger, not through what we can do, but what through God does for us. And so let's start in Romans 1.18. We're going to read several scriptures here uh, before we pray and jump into it. It says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven <clears throat> against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, because un being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. He's telling them, listen, the truth that he exists, the truth of who he is, is being suppressed by the wickedness of man. Look over in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, But because of this, your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when the right, his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, Seek glory, honor, and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. 
There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. And Paul lays this out. He tells us that the wrath is coming because of the wickedness of man. He says those who do good will be rewarded with eternal life. Those who do evil won't. But then he's setting all this up to get to Romans 3.23, where he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Later in Romans, he makes the statement that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one is good, not even one. And so as he's saying these things, he's really setting them up for them to be able to realize that apart from Christ, we have no hope. Now we come to <clears throat> Romans 3, verse 24. And it tells us this, and all are justified freely by his grace. To be justified, it's not just to say that you've been forgiven or pardoned. It's not just to say that, you know, you did wrong, but I'm going to let you off the hook. To be justified is to be made as though the, the sin, the, the, the mistake, the error, the wrong never happened. And so Paul writes this, and he says, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And listen, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. I want to back up and look at this just a second where it says that he was a sacrifice of atonement. That is where the word for propitiation comes in. Word for atonement can also be translated propitiation. Now what he's saying here is that he was a sacrifice for the appeasement of the wrath of God. He was a sacrifice for the appeasement of God's anger. And so he tells us that we can by faith receive this. And he tells us that God was demonstrating through the sacrifice of Jesus his righteousness because he wouldn't be righteous if he didn't punish evil. And so now flip over to Romans chapter five. This is the last passage we'll read and then we'll jump in. It says in verse one of Romans five, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So we see this transition from God's anger and wrath falling on people to now those who have faith in Christ are at peace with God. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Listen to this. You see, some translations say for. This is really just a transition word pointing back to what he's just said. But I love the NIV translation of it because he says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. That seems really confusing. We'll get to that later. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? 
through him. For if, while we were still, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only, this, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your power and thank you for your grace that your word tells us that by faith we now stand in. Thank you that through that grace, Father, we can come boldly before your throne, just as Chase mentioned. God, not through our own righteousness, but through the righteousness received by faith in Christ. Lord, today would you open our eyes to see even more clearly the great and, and mighty love you have for us, God. Even in the face of our own failings, even in the face of our own wickedness, even in the face of our own evil, the great love that you have to see the chasm that you've bridged. God, help us to feel the conviction of sin, but the release and the joy of grace through Christ. So we love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question, and I don't have to ask this first one of uh, have you ever been angry? I, I know this. Every single person in this room has been angry at some point, right? But here's, here's my first question. Have you been angry this month? Who's been angry this month? Angry this month. Some of y'all, need. I know you, you need to raise your hand because I know you and you did not and you got angry this month. Um, how about this week? Some of y'all got angry this week. Some of y'all been angry this week at somebody? All right. How about this weekend? You got angry this weekend. Come on, be honest. You got angry this weekend. All right, all right. Here's a real test. How many of y'all got angry this morning? Huh? On the way to church, you got angry. Some of y'all are sitting next to the person you got angry at. And, and, and it's your spouse. And we're going to have to go back and redo that whole marriage series after this morning. Right? And, and so um, the point of this is that we, we all at times get angry. How many of you feel justified in your anger? Like you always, you, like you get mad and you're like, well, I'm, I'm justified in that. I ought to be angry at that. They did me wrong. They shouldn't have done that. And it's kind of vengeful, right? It's kind of vindictive. Like I'm going to get them back and I'll do this or I'll do that or whatever it might be. And, and we kind of feel justified and there's this vindictiveness to our anger. We feel we have this right to be angry. Um, how many of you, you can just have an emotional outburst, like something happens and sometimes it's even disproportionate to what happens and you're just like, ah, right? Anybody else? Right. Yeah. We can just do that sometimes. We have this emotional outburst. Something just sets you off. We hear the phrase, you just flew off the handle, right? You ever heard that? You're like, man, that dude just flew off the handle. That dude went crazy, man. Did you see crazy in his eyes? Like he was, he, he just nutted up like big time. He went, just flew off the handle. Y'all know where that, that phrase comes from, flew off the handle? It actually comes from like the mid-1800s. I'm a nerd. I look this stuff up. It comes from the mid-1800s. And what it refers to is a loose axe head that flies off like during someone's backswing, right? So they're going to chop some wood. They throw the axe back. The axe head is loose. It just comes flying off. And it literally refers to hitting an innocent person, like striking an innocent person. So when we say you flew off the handle, like you're tearing up everything around you, whether people expect it or not. And some of y'all right now are thinking about your wife. Like sometimes I don't even expect it, but all of a sudden it just flew off the handle, bam, upside the head. Or it might be your husband. You're like, I don't 
don't even know what set him off, but somebody flew off the handle. And that's what that means. It's just this emotional response, right? When we get angry like that, when we get to this point of anger that we can say it's wrathful, it's just angry, we're not even thinking clearly. A lot of times we say things we regret or we do things that we regret in this moment of great wrath and anger. And think about the things you get mad at. Is your anger predictable? Do people around you know everything that sets you off? Or are you somewhat unpredictable in what makes you mad today or what makes you mad tomorrow? Are there a lot of things that make you mad? And see, here's the reason I say that is because this is not what God's anger or wrath is like. And a lot of people have a really hard time picturing God as a wrathful, angry God because we compare our anger to God's anger. And we compare our wrath to God's wrath. But this is not what God's anger or God's wrath is like. God's hostility, listen, God's hostility and his anger towards us is justified. Our hostility or rebellion towards him is not. So there's this difference. There's this justified anger that he has towards us because of our rebellion against us. God's anger is predictable. We don't have to fear some emotional outburst from God. He doesn't fly off the handle. His anger isn't spiteful and vindictive. It's not irrational. It's not so emotional that he's not thinking clearly. It's not something that's out of control. I want you to hear this because this is really, really, really important. God's anger is predictable because his anger is directed at one thing and one thing only. His anger is predictable because it's directed at one thing and one thing only, and that is evil. God's anger is aroused by sin, by evil. It's the one thing. It's predictable. It's not out of control. He's not lost his mind. He hasn't flown off the handle. And in God's anger, this is what's so crazy, even in God's anger and wrath toward evil, we see his righteousness and his love. We see his righteousness and his love. See, God wouldn't be right. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be the God, the good God that he is, the faithful God that he is, the God that we can trust the way we can trust. It, he wouldn't be right if he ignored and left evil unpunished. It, it, he just would damage his character and the person that he is. But it wouldn't be loving for the creator just to turn his back on his creation. And so in this, we see this plan that God works out. Here, There's this anger and there's this righteous indignation towards evil. And yet at the same time, he refuses to return his back on his creation because he loves it so much. Here's a question. Why is God angry? Right? Why would God pour out wrath on a world that the Bible says he loves? Remember that verse, for God so loves the world? God so loved the world. Why would He'd be so angry. Why would he pour out wrath on a world? Why would there be this day of judgment that is coming when his wrath would be poured out on evil, on those who have done evil? 
kind of another example from marriage, right? Like, why are they mad? Anybody ever experienced that? You just kind of get that look. You know what I mean? You get that silence, right? You, you, you just don't even know. And so finally you just get to this point where you're like, you, you all right? I'm fine. You sure? No, I'm upset. Well, what are you upset about? You know what you did. I honestly don't know, right? I honestly don't know. And so finally you just have to get to this point where you say, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. And so we're kind of like, what brought on the anger? We don't know. But the Bible is clear that God's anger is towards evil. And the Bible is clear about what we have done. We have sinned against God. We have rebelled against God. We have fallen short of God's standard. Here's the uncomfortable thing about this. For us, it doesn't always seem like a big deal. Like, okay, so I messed up. Okay, so I sinned. But the reason that this is hard for us to understand is because we compare good and evil to our experience, not to a holy God. Does that make sense? So we compare what's good and evil to our experience in the world, not to a holy God. To be holy means to be other. See, he is so much higher. He is so much better. He is so much more perfect, righteous, just, all of these things, loving, just, just so much of this more so than us that we can't even begin to wrap our mind around it. And so when we look around and we see evil and we see good and we see ourselves so many times, we can look at that and go, well, I mean, it's not so bad. But we're comparing good and evil to our experience, not to God's holiness. And see, we live in a time where it would be very easy for us to look around at good and what we think is evil and what we think is good and go, well, at least I'm not that. I mean, we look around at the wickedness of man. It's never been more clear, right? It's never been more clear. One of the greatest tragedies, you, you, you know, you look at the world around us. One of the greatest tragedies of our day is that we're the most connected people in history and at the same time, the most lonely. One of the greatest misfortunes today is that the world has never sought in so many different ways and with such passion and such determination to find unity, but the world has never as a whole, I don't believe, ever been more divided. One of the most hypocritical statements made today is that people want to be inclusive, but millions and millions feel left out. And inclusion only includes you if you agree with what they want to be included with. 
One of the greatest afflictions that plagues humanity is that we have more knowledge about things than any other time in history, yet we know so little about ourselves. We are the least self-aware people in the history of the world. Gotta be. One of the greatest fabrications that exists both in the church and in the world is that we want people to feel accepted but people all around us feel the pain of rejection. If you don't look like us, think like us, if you aren't exactly like us, if, if you're a little different than us, then stay out of our circle. Church is still so divided. And we're supposed to be a place not just for people to show up, not people, just a place to come to, not just a place to go to. We're supposed to be a place to belong. And yet we reject people who are a little bit different than us. We live in a time of unparalleled deception. There's deception everywhere. And the thing about deception is it will chip away at you and chip away at you and chip away at you like a tide slowly moving you down the beach until one day you wake up and where your feet used to be planted here, now all of a sudden they are planted here. And we live in this time of massive deception. We live in a time that proves you can have great knowledge and have zero wisdom. We're in a time where the world is attempting to bridle and stamp out truth so mankind can normalize wickedness. We live in a time which mankind is exchanging the truth of God for a lie at a mind-blowing rate. We live at a time where God, our, our God is our desire, our desires are unrestrained, and our unrestrained appetites are leading us to a godless existence called hell. We live in a time where God-haters are given the greatest platform, the arrogant are elevated, the greedy seem to win, and wickedness seems to abound in prosperity. To sum it all up, we live in a time in which the depravity of our minds, the wickedness of our hearts, and the corruptions of our souls could not be more clear. And you have to understand that what God goes against, what goes against God's design is rebellion, it's wickedness, it's sin. And this is what God's wrath falls upon. But before we, before we, before we, look, we, we, us, before we get too puffed up, understand that the church, the body of Christ, is not without flaw. Let's don't sit here this morning and point our fingers out there, right? Let's don't sit here this morning and pretend that our stuff's all together. Because in the New Testament, Jesus often rebukes the religious and even entire churches for their sin. Every rebuke Jesus gave can be found, even sometimes rapidly found in our churches today. There's a lack of fervent love for Jesus and for one another. There's an issue of immorality where immorality is just tolerated idolatry or this love and putting other things above God in our life. It robs God of worship in our churches. Dead religion has replaced the power of life and worship in the spirit. Apathy, listen to this. This is, this is so tragic and so sad. Apathy and indifference is destroying the most powerful world-changing, potential-laden community of people called the church, making it impotent, 
weak, vulnerable, anemic, and leaving it aimlessly wandering through the world, not making a difference. Churches are full of people whose judgmental attitudes shut the door of the kingdom in their faces. Many have cleaned up the outside of their life but have never experienced the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit on the inside. It's all just been a game. People sit in chairs and pews week after week portraying the life of Christ while all the while they're dead on the inside. The church is full of greed, envy, lust, sexual immorality, hate, bitterness, deceit, strife, division, slanderers, gossips, arrogant people, cold religious people, people without mercy, people without love, and people without an understanding of their purpose and the church's purpose. And if we look at this, church people understand this. The wrath of God should fall on us too. You and I are just as deserving as God's wrath as people who are outside these walls. God's hostility toward us is justified. It is legitimate. He has a right to be angry. Our rebellion and our hostility against him isn't. But even, listen, laying out all of this, all of this, the, 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 that's basically Romans 1 and 2 and part of 3 is all of this sin, all of uh, this, this indifference towards God, turning away from the creator to the creation, all of these things. Um, it, it basically is Romans 1, 2 and part of 3. When, when we look at this, though, I want you to understand that th those things aren't the greatest issues. I'm going to give you the two greatest issues. These are symptoms of the of, of of what the greatest issues are. Here's the first issue. Here's the first issue. Here's the, one of the, the, the first greatest issue is this, that we have no comprehension of the depth of our depravity in comparison to the holy God. We have no comprehension of how truthfully sinful, evil we are in comparison to the holy God. Because we compare good and evil to our experience, not to God's holiness. So we shrug off our wickedness with rationalization. We dismiss our apathy with occasional religious activities by going to church or Bible study or maybe reading my Bible or doing all of these things to try to appease him and please him. And then we freely give our worship to the creation that we are so grappling for and straining for and trying to get more of rather than trying to strive for and strain for a closer relationship with the creator. The first major issue is that we have no comprehension of the good and evil, the evil that resides in us. No comprehension of the depth of the depravity in comparison to a holy God. So that was fun. But here's the second one, guys. We have no comprehension. This is number two. We have no comprehension of the depth of God's love for us in comparison to the greatest love we've ever experienced. See, just as we look at 
good and evil and base what's good or what's evil or how good or evil we are on our experiences. We also base our understanding of God's love on our experiences. And none of us have ever experienced the love of God purely, perfectly, anything like that in our relationships in the world. Nothing that is so perfect and so unconditional and so great and so mind-blowing, so amazing. None of us have experienced that in our earthly relationships. And so one of the greatest issues for us and for the world, it's not just so we don't understand our depravity, it's this, we have no comprehension of the depth of God's love for us in comparison to the greatest love we've ever experienced. We, we can't fathom it. Just look at it this way. Who initiated the propitiation of God's anger? Who initiated the satisfaction of his anger towards evil? Who initiated the appeasement of his wrath? Who initiated it? It wasn't us. It wasn't you. It wasn't me. It was God. We love God because he first loved us. It was God's plan all along to send his son because he loved the world so much. Our love for God didn't precede God's love for us. The, listen to this. You got to listen to this. The cross was not God's reaction to our love. God's love was the catalyst for the cross. The cross wasn't God's reaction to us somehow making ourselves good enough or loving him or even crying out to him. God's love was the catalyst for the cross. One of my favorite passages of scripture is in Romans 5, chapter 6. And told you earlier, I like the way the NIV translated it because it says you see I remember when one of my sons was little, I still was working in the roofing business. I actually owned my own small business at the time. And I had a guy who was actually a friend of mine. Um, then his name was Jose. And we were at a ball game one day, and they played the Star Spangled Banner. And my son looked at me, and he said, Dad, why do we always sing about Jose? Like, son, what are you talking about? He's like, every time we go, like, to a ball game or something, we sing this song about Jose. I said, son, what do you mean? He said, you know, Jose, can you see? I was like, no, son, no, no, no. It's, oh, say, can you see, right? And I look at this passage and it says, I love the reason I love it is because he says, you see. My question to you today, though, is do you see what God has done? Do you see, verse 6, that just at the right time, there was this point, this climactic point in history that God had planned before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. And it was this right, perfect time for Jesus to come into the world and for Jesus to live a perfect life and for Jesus to go to the cross. It was this right, perfect time. And it says that it was during a time when we were still powerless. In other words, we had no hope. Humanity was without hope. But at the perfect time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
This next verse used to puzzle me a little bit. It says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. That seems kind of backwards, doesn't it? Like certainly if someone's righteous, someone would be willing to die for them, more so than maybe somebody that's just kind of good. But what I began to understand in that is when it's talking about a righteous person, it's more of a pharisaical, religious, cold, kind of clinical type of religion. Someone who might be one who gives a judgmental glare at someone who's not as righteous as them. And he's saying these people are kind of despised, so nobody probably would die for them. But for a good person, someone might dare to die. I mean, this person's done a lot of good stuff. They've helped a lot of people. I'd take a bullet for that person. But then it goes on, and this is what's crazy, and this is the beautiful contrast that's made in this, because in verse 8, he goes on to say, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How incredible is that? He says, look, people wouldn't die for the righteous. Somebody might die for the good. But I love so deeply and so great. I love in such a great magnitude that I died for the ungodly, even while you were still sinners. The Bible says that even while we were enemies of God, he still died for us, even though we were deserving of God's wrath, even though we were deserving of the anger, even though our life and our sin is so evil compared to a holy God. He says, I still died for the ungodly and it was my plan from way back before you were ever even thought of he said I'd thought about you a long time ago and before the foundations of the earth were laid this is the plan that Jesus at just the right time would come into the world to powerless people to die for the ungodly to do what no one else would do to save sinners and he says since now we've been justified by his blood how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him for if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life see there's our hope there's our hope and I would ask you, can you see it? Even if you just look at verses 1 through 11 in Romans 5, take out the rest of the Bible. Can you see the love in his plan to reconcile his creation? Can you see the love that he executed as he executed his plan flawlessly and faithfully throughout history? Can you see his love as at just the right time Jesus Christ died for the ungodly? Can you see his love that moved in power to save us when we were powerless to save ourselves? Can you see the demonstration of his love for us before we ever cleaned ourselves up, put on a suit, sang a hymn, sang a worship song, ate a communion cracker, or cracked open a Bible? That he died for us before we did any of those things. Can you see how wide and long and high and deep the love of God really is. Can you see how wide the gap is that existed between God and man because of our wickedness and how great the love of Jesus is that bridged that gap by giving his own life? Can you see the love of God 
the, 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 the lengths he went through to remove our iniquity. Can you see today, listen, can you see today that his arm is still not too short to save? No matter the evil in your life, no matter the sin in your life, that today God can reach down and pluck you up out of the mire. He can pluck you up out of the filth. He can pluck you up out of the sexual immorality. He can pluck you up out of the drug abuse. He can pluck you up out of all of the abuse in your past. He can pluck you up out of despair. He can pluck you up out of depression. He can pluck you up out of rejection. He can pluck you up out of anything that you are facing, that you are dealing with, whatever you've done in your past, whoever you've done it with, God's arm is not too short to save. His power is still real. The gospel is still powerful, and God still saves through his son, Jesus. Can you see the love that compelled Jesus from the heights of heaven to the depths of our depravity to bring us such a great salvation. Can you see what God's love did for those who were his enemies, whose anger toward his creation was justified? Can you see God's love? Listen, can you see all of the love of God in just this one image. We're gonna talk about three more images that show us God's love. This one was the shrine, the offering that would appease God's anger. Can you see all of the love that exists just in this one aspect of God's love that he performed through the cross? Can you see just a piece or a facet of what has happened at the cross so that Jesus could utter the words, it is finished. The answer to this question is obvious. How was the anger of God appeased and satisfied? When you look at this picture behind me, this is something you would see in some kind of shrine, maybe a Hindu temple. I went to a Hindu temple in Minneapolis one time and as we walked into this temple area where people were worshiping and they were bringing plates of food and fruit and flowers and different things, things like what you see here in this picture. And they were offering them to all these different gods. And this room was probably at least as big as this room. And there were different gods and shrines set up all around. And these people were coming and bowing down and laying food at the feet of these idol um, statues. And they were laying these things down and, and, and they were hoping to appease the gods. They were hoping to find approval. They were hoping to find favor. And, and they were doing their best to do this. We watched as they carried two of these shrines on their shoulders. The men were dancing back and forth and people were trying to throw the, these wreaths, these lays over the necks of the gods. And this was supposed to be a marriage of the gods to bring favor uh, to the people. And we look at this and in every religion in the world, it is the effort of the human that is done to try and appease the anger of God. The problem with that is it can never be appeased. What dirty you can't make something clean so God sent what's clean into the world to take our dirt so that we could become clean in other words the one who had no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God
And here's the thing. If we can somehow grasp this, Romans 12, 1, it says, therefore, and, and the therefore is referring back to the gospel presentation that Paul lays out through the book of Romans. And, and it says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. It says, this is your spiritual act of worship or of service. This is your reasonable act of worship. This is your reasonable act of service. He's saying, look, if you see this, just this one facet, like worshiping God on Sunday, like worshiping God through the week, like pursuing God through prayer, pursuing God through scripture, pursuing God through community, sharing the gospel with other people. He says, if you catch a glimpse of this, if you can get a revelation of this, he says, look, it's not something that's extraordinary or something that's above and beyond. He says, this is just the reasonable thing to do. You see the love that God has. What's our response to this? What's our response to Jesus' sacrifice? What's our response to Jesus as he went to the cross and our sin was laid upon him, our evil was laid upon him, and God's wrath fell upon him for our sin, that our sin upon him caused God's wrath to fall on him? What's our response to the fact that at the cross we see the greatest wrath and anger of God, and yet the greatest demonstration of God's love for us. What is our response to this? For believers, it should be this. It should be repentance. It should be a turning from our sin, our wickedness, our evil back to God. It, it shouldn't be a one-time thing. It shouldn't be just an altar call on a Sunday. It should be a life of repentance that when we realize we're drifting away from God, that we have turned our back to God, that we realize that we can come boldly before His throne of grace, that we realize those sins have been paid for and I can turn and I can come back to my Father. It should be a life of repentance. It should be a life of worship. It should be a life of thankfulness, a life of rejoicing for what God has done. But we get so distracted by the things around us. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be reminded of the good news because this is good news. Even though there is evil and there is even evil in our hearts, God has made a way for us to come to him and we should worship. It should bring us to this place of worship and thanksgiving to God because he's so worthy of it. He so deserves it. That should be the response of believers. For unbelievers, it's also repentance, but it's repentance from the sin and evil in your life for the first time, and it's turning from this old dead way of living to this newness of life that God gives through faith in Jesus. When we say yes to his offer, what happens is God gives us himself. He gives us his spirit. We say, I'm going to follow you, God. He gives us his spirit. And the Bible says he gives us a new heart, a heart that's not bent towards evil and wickedness and hostility towards God, but a heart that now desires God, wants God, wants to live for God, a, a heart that wants to be in his presence, a heart that wants to be pleasing for him. But I'm being pleasing for him, not because I'm trying to earn salvation, but because salvation has been given to me through Christ. For believers, it should bring worship. For unbelievers, repentance and salvation. We realize what God has truly done for us. This is just one facet, guys. One part of what had to happen on the cross in order for us to be made right with God. 
And I don't know about you, but I need the hope that comes from this. I need the peace that can come from this. The peace of God. Knowing that we have peace with God. The hope that comes even through suffering as we see the faithfulness of God. I need to be reminded of that. And I believe you do too. And this is what I want to ask right now. I'm going to pray. And why don't you, if you're in that place right now where just need prayer for anything, for whatever it is. You just need hope to arise in your heart, the hope that comes from the gospel of Christ, the hope that springs forth from realizing that God's given us such an amazing grace that we stand in grace. If you are in a place where you need prayer, why don't you stand to your feet? I, I would ask you, you pray for me, I'll pray for you. But why don't you right now, why don't you stand and let's together, let's declare our need for God. We sang a song earlier. Lord, I need you. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I pray that that would be the cry of our heart today. Father, I thank you this morning for the power of your word, the power of your spirit. I thank you right now that you would move in the hearts of your people through the power of your Holy Spirit. I want to ask you, if you do want prayer, would you come down maybe to this area to my right? It would be your left and my right, your left. If you want to come and pray for specifically, that's available for you. God, I thank you right now, Lord. Would you move in our hearts? We need you. Lord, we need you. God, we need you. Jesus, we need you right now. Would you move? Would you rise, um, raise up hope inside of us, hope within us right now, God? Would you fill us again with the power of your spirit, God? Would you give us, Lord, um, your your hope and your peace. As we turn our hearts, we turn our lives to you. Father, I thank you for it. I thank you for the love you give. Father, if there's anyone today who doesn't know you, I pray that you've moved in their hearts in such a way that they would say yes to you as their Savior and yes to you as their Lord, that they would turn from their sin and turn to the life-giving God. Today, if you realize that you've been living life without God, life without Christ, I'm just going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you that when the service is over, that you go straight out the back and go to the next steps table and you just tell someone back there that you've decided to follow Jesus. And they're going to take you through some next steps and help you take those next steps in a new life. There'll be someone there to say, I've decided to follow Jesus today. And for the rest of us, help us fix our eyes on you and run the race you set before us. Thank you that you give us the strength to persevere. We love you and we worship you today in Jesus' name.